Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 94 of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. First of all, I'd like to welcome all you to part two of episode number 94 of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app or on Stitcher or on iHeartRadio or on Google Play Music or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is this? I'm going to give you a brief description of what the show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm a 24-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a huge 16 music fan slash expert slash nerd. Each week of this podcast, I take one song, but one artist in the 60s, split the show in two parts. First part, I start to talk about my opinion of the song and why I think it's so good, or why I think it sucks, and, do my, and then do my own personal analysis on the arrangement of the song, which will include the chords, melody, and lyrics. And the second part, I show dig deep into the history behind that track. And that part of talk show talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, who are the musicians in the track, whether it be the session musicians or the band members themselves. I talk about the studio the song was recorded at, where that studio was located, the name of that studio, and I also talk about um, the record label the song was released on, and the year month the song was released, and the peak position the song made up originally in the Billboard How 100 Charts, the history behind the artist that recorded the song, and the songwriter that wrote it, and the guy that produced it. All that is in the second part of this show. Moving on, let's talk about the history behind last week's band, which was Jane Techniques, and the song that they recorded, you know, which was, was the name of the song was called Applebee's Smoking Pie. Now, here's the thing, is that Jane Techniques is one of those really obscure 60s bands that unfortunately never made it out of the 60s, and there's definitely a reason for that, because you might be in love with this band after hearing this song, but the real question we want to ask yourself is, are you in love with this band or the people behind the music? Because you might think just as, oh, wow, these the Jane Techniques are such great musicians. But wait a minute. Are they really? Now, I'm going to talk about that for a minute because um, I mentioned this before in my podcast, but long before the days before the Internet and before people could just look stuff up and verify certain facts and information, a lot of people back then assumed that the band that that they saw on TV were in fact the musicians on their recordings. And at the time, most people had no idea that there were other people involved in the making of their music other than the guys that they saw on TV or live and in-person shows. They just thought, oh, okay, so I'm seeing this band doing their songs. They had to have been the musicians on their recordings because they do these songs so well live. I mean, heck, they, they, they had to have been the musicians on the recordings. I mean, I don't see why they wouldn't be. And another thing I wanted to mention to you about this band is that they were one of the few American bands at the time that had both black and white members. I mean, they were integrated. And those groups at the time were surprisingly rare. Now, were they the first American band to have both black and white musicians in the group to have top 40 hits on Billboard? Absolutely not. That distinction belongs to groups like Booker T and the MGs and before that, the Dell Vikings. But if you look at the landscape of pop and R&B bands in the 60s, pretty much 90% of them were pretty separated with either all white groups or all black groups. And this was done to the nature of racial prejudice in America at the, this time. 
you know, this was during the civil rights movement. And this was back when in certain places in America, it was illegal for black and white people to basically be in the same room in a public place. You know, I know that sounds really shitty, but I mean, that's just the way things were back then. And even though groups of session musicians that were in, in integrated, because I mean, I've talked about this before. If you go back and listen to my Muscle Shoals episode, I talk about the black, you know, the white, actually the white musicians backing up the black singers. I mean, yes, I mean, there were definitely groups of session musicians that had both black and white guys in them. Bands or groups that you saw on TV were most of the time either all white or all black. But this changed once the 60s moved on, because as you know, the Civil Rights Act got passed in 64, and then things, you know, things started progressing in our society. And after this group became successful, there was another band called Sly and Family Stone who came into prominence about actually less than a year later. I mean, they released their first album just as the song was hitting the charts and it was becoming popular. And, you know, that band pretty much predated them by a little bit. I mean, actually, when this song was literally popular and it was literally, you know, on the charts and it was really hot. You know, uh, you know, basically, Sly and the Family Stone's first hit wouldn't co- come on the charts until like th- five or six months later in March of 1968, whereas this song was on the charts in September, October 1967. So, Jane Techniques actually came before Sly and the Family Stone, even though Sly and the Family Stone's first album came out actually a month after this, so- actually a month when the song was in the ch- was in the charts, but, um, you know, that album wasn't very successful. So anyways, um, you know, yeah, I mean, yes, they were these, this band came before Sly and the Family Stone, and they came out just around the time when the foundations were, you know, were having hits in America. I mean, again, this was all late 67, early 68, but probably the biggest difference between Jane and Techniques and all the other integrated bands, you know, that would come after them is that the musicians that played in the band and the ones who lip-synced the song on TV were not the same guys who were the musicians on the recordings. But if you're wondering exactly how and why this all happened, let's get into that, shall we? Okay, so the story of Jane Techniques really all started with a guy who was very much a part of the Philly Philadelphia music scene in the early 60s. And just an FYI, um, I'm about to do some double-dipping into an area of popular music i've covered once before on my show so just in case you don't know what i'm talking about refer back to the episode i did on the delphonics i go into more detail about what i'm about to talk about in this episode this podcast um if you listen to part two of the delphonics i go really in depth on the history of philadelphia music but i'm going to talk about this again but if you go back and listen to the episode then this one will make a lot more sense and and that guy who I'm referring to that really got kickstarted the whole career of J.A. Techniques was a guy named Jerry Ross. And even though Jerry really, here's the thing, is that Jerry Ross was one of those uh, Philadelphia songwriters that never really wrote any huge hits for Cameo Parkway in their golden years. And again, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go listen back to the episode where I talk about Cameo Parkway, them being the biggest independent label in Philadelphia at the time. Um, even though he didn't really have any huge hits with them, he knew all the musicians who played on their records and was one of the earliest Philly musicians slash producers who made his way to New York when the Philly music scene pretty much dried up in like 64, 65. 
And he also nurtured the careers of two guys who later go on to be a part of the next wave of Philly music in the late 60s, Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff. Uh, Because the thing is that he actually signed Kenny Gamble to a songwriting publishing contract and wrote quite a few songs with him. And while he was in Philly, he worked on the TV show American Bandstand with Dick Clark back when it was based in Philadelphia. This is before he moved to Los Angeles in 1964. And he was also the host of Dick Clark's own radio show that complimented an American Bandstand at the time called Caravan of Stars. And actually, Jerry Ross was actually the announcer on that show on American Bandstand for quite a while. So he was the guy who announced all, you know, did all the announcements for the show. And, you know, that was something he did for a while as he was crawling himself into the record business. And during this time in Philly, he produced a doo-wop group called the Dream Lovers, and they had a hit called When We Get Married. And with Kenny Gamble, he co-wrote and produced the Sapphires, Who Do You Love? And check this out. So the guys who play on When We Get Married were the same guys who pretty much played on Who Do You Love? And these guys were, you know, some a couple of the musicians who played on uh, the Cameo Parker records, plus some other guys too, like... Joe Macko on bass, Joe Renzetti on guitar, Leon Huff and Tom Bill on keyboards, and, you know, Bobby Martin on vibes. But here's their thing, is that he also produced Candy and the Kisses, the 81, which was a huge local hit in Philadelphia, but not a huge hit nationally. And, you know, the thing is that that was the only somewhat of a hit that he uh, wrote and produced for Cameo Parkway. And this was at a time, this was in 1964, when Cameo Parkway was struggling to have any more hits. I mean, I, I talked about this in part two of the Delphonics. So basically, I was talking about uh, all the big artists for Cameo Parkway, like Bobby Rydell and the Orlons and Chubby Checker. They were no longer having hits because of the British invasion, you know, and the label took a big hit with that. So when this happened, Jerry Ross was smart because he knew that there wasn't too much going on in Philadelphia anymore after Camion Parkway took a big hit, you know, from being from the British invasion. So what he did is that he decided to pack up his bags and move to New York, and which was pretty close to Philly at the time, about 90 miles away. And here's the thing is that even though he was a Philadelphia based producer and songwriter, he was actually already, you know, making trips to New York City trying to get songs sold, you know, by the by by some publishers and some record labels. You know, so he was already going to New York even when he was based in Philadelphia. So, you know, it was just natural for him to make this move, you know. So he, you know, because at the time, Philadelphia was so close to New York. I mean, it still is really. It's only about 90 miles away. So, um, you know, only I think it was only a two hour drive. And so anyways, he became the A&R head of Mercury Records because he met the president of Mercury at the time, Shelby Singleton. And basically, Shelby had heard about Jerry Ross from some of the local and regional hits that he was producing in Philadelphia at the time, and he really liked the way Jerry could produce. So he basically gave him the job as being an A&R man slash producer for the label. And while we're at it, let's talk about the history behind Jane and Techniques because their history really all ties in with this guy. You see, the band all started with a guy named Jay Proctor, who was the lead singer of the group, right? And he was a black guy. He was sitting in a bar with his friend George Lloyd when a friend of his approached him and said, there was this band that he was starting and he was running if they could audition for him. And he said, sure. And from that audition became the members of the Techniques. And at the time, they were simply just called the Techniques. They didn't have the J in front of the name yet. 
And they happened to catch the attention of Jerry Boss. I'm not really sure how, but somehow they did. Who at the time was working, again, as an A&R band for Mercury Records. And one thing I want to say about this particular song is that before it got... Before they got the Jane the Techniques, before they even recorded it, Jerry actually tried to get some of the artists that he was working with at the time to do it. Because, like I said before, you know, he was an AR man from Mercury Records. So he was working with Dee Dee Warwick and, you know, and Jerry Butler, who was, who was newly signed to Mercury at the time. And uh, basically, um, what was going on is that uh, none of the groups that he actually gave the song to were really didn't really they didn't really like it. I mean, none of them really were fans of the song. And he wasn't very satisfied with their takes on the song. And Bobby Hebb, an artist that he was working with at the time, flat out turned down the song and thought this tune was too bubblegum. And actually, you know, and so yeah, I mean, just just to prove to you that a lot of the people that, you know, he actually tried to try to pitch the song to before it got recorded by Jane Technis didn't like the song at all. And now I'm going to pause for a moment because I want to show you guys something. And this something that actually this might surprise you. I didn't find find this out until years and years later. I had no, no clue about this. But there actually was an earlier version of this song, you know, before it was recorded by Jane and Techniques. And it was recorded by a group that I will talk about in my podcast really, really soon, but I haven't talked about them yet. And that group was called Sam the Sham the Pharaohs. And at the time, they recorded the song under the name Ready or Not. But I wanted to show you guys the original recording of the song just to show you how terrible it sounds compared to the original version, uh, I mean, by actually to the hit version by Jane and Techniques. I mean, the original version is just not very good compared you know, to the hit version by Jane Technique. So without further ado, here's a here's a little taste of what the song originally sounded like before Jane Techniques recorded it. Ready or not, here I come. She got used to be so Peaches, pumpkin pie Who's not ready to holler I. That's a game we used to play Hide and seek, that was the name Wow oh, uh, See, that's not very good As you can tell I mean, it's, it's pretty bad I mean, I gotta say When Jerry Ross produces record With the one of his guys arranging the song they completely turned the song upside down and made it absolutely phenomenal. I mean, wow. They just really did a good job with just totally making a shitty-sounding record into a bomb-ass-sounding record. And they really did a good job of just turning that whole thing upside down and making that record really pop. And while we're at it, um, let's talk about uh, the, a little bit more about this. Because, I, like I said before... Um, a lot of the people that he tried to pitch the song to before, um, you know, the Jerry and Jane and Techniques recorded didn't like it. Well, guess what? As you can probably imagine, well, this actually might surprise you. Um, the guy who sang lead on the song, Jay Proctor, he didn't like the song either. Um, you know, he hated it too, proclaiming he wanted to be a hard, authentic soul singer. And he did not want to sing a song about no damn fruit. And also... 
Jerry Ross, the guy who produced the song, decided the members of the Techniques, again, this was the group that was formed, you know, in 1966 from that audition from that guy who said that he was looking for members. You, you know, he want he basically was in, he was introducing Jay Proctor to this group, you know, from sing, from from approaching him in the bar. He said the Techniques were good enough musicians to be the guys on the record. I mean, they couldn't really even read music very well. So instead, he used studio musicians when he recorded the track at Bell Sound Studios in January of 1967. And as far as... Now, here's here's the one thing, is that when I say that, a question that might come to mind to you is, okay, so if the members of the Techniques weren't the musicians on the records, who were the musicians on Apple Beach's Pumpkin Pie? Well, as far as who were the session guys on this record, I don't exactly know. But given the research... I have done on his other records that Jerry Ross produced and having talked to guys that played on his sessions, the musicians that were more than likely the guys on Apple Peach's Pumpkin Pie, and again, this is based off my own personal research. I don't really, don't quote me on this, but I'm more than likely correct because I'm, you know, this is all from my own personal research and just, I'm just making up my own educated guess on this, but the musicians in Apple Beach's Pumpkin Pie are more than likely a combination of New York studio musicians that were really hot at the time and his uh, his guys in Philadelphia. So you probably had guys like Joe Macco on bass and Joran Zetti on guitar. And by the way, Joe Macco and Joran Zetti were actually guys who played on a lot of Cameo Parkway recording sessions. They were two Philadelphia guys that Jerry Ross brought with him to... Uh, they actually made the jump from Philly to New York you know, once the Cameo Parkway sort of records, you know, once once their hits dried up. And yeah, Joe and Zeddy, Al Gargoni on guitar, um, George Devins on vibes, Bernard Purdy and Al Rogers on drums, and Artie Kaplan on Barry Sax and Burt Collins on trumpet, and Artie Butler on organ and Tom Bell on piano. And again, this is all my educated guests on this information, I don't know exactly for sure who were the musicians in the track. I mean, I did read an interview with Jerry Ross, and he said that, you know, Tom Bell was his keyboard guy on a lot on a lot of his sessions, and you know, he is probably another one of those guys that he brought from Philly to New York to play on this record. You know, I mean, they probably could have used Artie Butler too. I don't really know for sure, but I do know for a fact. That the backup vocalists on the track are this are the some people that at the time weren't having much success musically, but in just a month or two they will later go on and have huge success as writers and producers working for Motown Records, and those two people were Nick Ashford and Valerie Simpson with Melba Moore. Ashford and Simpson will later go on to write and produce for Marvin Gaye and Sammy Terrell with their first hit was Ain't No Mountain High Enough. So that's pretty cool if you think about it. So before um, they even, you know, wrote and record, produced any songs for Marvin Gaye and Tammy Tabell, they were singing backup for Jerry, for Jerry Ross on records like this one, Apple Peaches, Pumpkin Pie, and also Sunny by Bobby Hebb. So, you know, that's just a little tidbit right there, something you probably didn't already know. Now, take note of that if you're a huge Motown fan, because that's pretty cool if you ask me. And just an FYI, if you don't think I'm a credible source when it comes to this kind of information, I actually did talk to a guy a while, a long time ago, who actually um, was on the session for Apple Peaches Pumpkin Pie. He was the Barry Sachs player, 
and more than likely the contractor too. And he told me who were the musicians on Bobby Heb Sunny, but I think he just really couldn't remember who else was on some of the other records that he played on. Um, you know, so uh but he was in fact on on that session and uh so I'm just telling you that all this information I'm giving you right now is more than likely correct because I when I talked to a guy who played on um one on on on, on all of his records and was even the contractor on some and now I've also looked at some credits on some other things too um that he produced and this is probably more than likely correct information so you know I'm I'm pretty sure I'm a credible source when it comes to stuff like this Okay, so check this out. So now that you know that Jay Proctor was the only member of the Techniques present at Apple Beach's Pumpkin Pie, this is where the story gets weird. Okay, so Jerry Ross decided to rename the group without consultation or consent from the group and call them Jay and the Techniques. He did this supposedly because single band names at the time weren't as popular as the two name bands with the leader's name and the group's name right next to it, like Smokey Robinson and the Miracles and Diana Ross and the Supremes. And even though the, 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 group, the group wished they were the musicians on the song, they were cool with it in the beginning, but as the group started to progress, they started to get jealous, as Apple Peach's Pumpkin Pie was a number six record in September or October 1967 on the Billboard Hot 100 charts after it being released in March of that year. And by the way, um, the record was released on a Mercury subsidiary label, Smash Records, which also had hits like Bruce Chanel's Hey Baby, I Did That One, and the Swing and Medallion's Double Shot of My Baby's Love. I will definitely do that one pretty soon. And their next song was another tune picked by them, by their producer. And also another another big, big group of hits that, um, that Smash Records had were Walker Brothers' Make It Easy on Yourself and... The sun ain't gonna shine anymore. Those are both picked up from Phillips. So because Phillips and Mercury had that relationship together, and uh, you know they both picked, they picked up the American distribution. You know for those two songs. And uh, anyways, their next song that Jerry that actually that they recorded, which was their next single, was another tune picked by them by the producer uh, Jerry Ross. And it became a decent highest hit, pick, peaking at number 14, like November, December 1967. But he definitely wasn't crazy. The The lead singer of this song, Jay, uh, you know, Jay Proctor, he definitely wasn't crazy about that song either. And their last hit was another carbon copy of Applebee's Pumpkin Pie called <laughs> Strawberry Shortcake. And as you can see, Jay Proctor was getting sick of these doing these super poppy soul songs. Really, he wanted what he wanted to do was hard soul, like Otis Redding or Wilson Pickett, you know, or one of those guys like Clarence Carter. But Jerry wouldn't really let him do that, and Jay was essentially a puppet on the string. You know, he was basically told to do whatever you know uh, Jerry wanted him to do, really. And you know, Jerry was the one who was controlling the whole thing. And if there's anything you can take away about this week's episode of the podcast is that back then, you really didn't know about what happened behind the scenes with the record industry unlike you do right now. Because now you can kind of just Google stuff and you can see what's going on behind the scenes. I mean, the fact that even 
you know, there's even there's even a lot of YouTube videos now of, of where you can see, you know, writers, you know, writing hit songs and, you know, you can kind of see the inner workings of, you know, behind the scenes. I mean, you can see video tutorials of guys producing records, you know, and but back then there wasn't really anything like that. So most of the time you didn't really know what was going on in, you know, with records back then. And, you know, it's interesting. And the other thing that I wanted to want you to take away about this episode of this podcast is that conflict between the many people involved in the making of records still happens in future decades and even today. I mean, the, you know, you heard you hear about bands feuding against each other and, you know, fighting over publishing royalties and, you know, and writing credits. I mean, you know, there was a, a lot of bands back then. There was a lot of conflict, but this continued with bands in the 70s and 80s and I've even heard of some groups having some conflicts with you know some ex-band members even today so you know I mean this 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 is a thing that happens with the music industry because a lot of times when you you know form a band with someone it's basically like you're dating them really and you know it could be like it could either go really really well or you could break up and it can just a lot of shit can happen so you know, I mean, this is no different except that, you know, there was a lot of issues happening between the guy that produced the song and the guy who sang on the song, sang all the records, you know, and even the even the quote unquote band that he discovered that he made go out and tour and promote these songs that they didn't even plan in the first place. So, you know, I mean, this could still happen today. And this is just a little takeaway lesson for you if you think that. You know, don't don't be so deceived in thinking that everything's always all so good in the hood when you when you see these bands perform live, you know, and on TV because you a lot of times you don't really know unless you become friends with them and you talk to them and you find out what's really going on. But you know, that's just unless they share about it on their social media, you know, which which oftentimes does happen. But hopefully, you get the idea and what I'm what the point I'm driving home with this. So that concludes. Part two of episode number 94 of my Sicky Music Podcast, the Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and if you found out some really cool and interesting facts about this band, uh, Janie Techniques, and the song, you never really knew anything about it before. And by the way, just one more, th- a couple more things. Uh, this song was written by a guy named Maurice Irby Jr. I don't know anything about him at all, so I don't really have too much to say about him. You know, all I could figure out, all, only thing I could probably figure out about him is that he was a friend of Sam the Sham the Pharaohs, and that's how the song got to them because they were the first group to record it before getting techniques. And um, Strawberry Shortcake had the same musicians that were on Applebee's Pumpkin Pie, so. You know, it was pretty much like the same, you know, song, really. It was written by the same guy who wrote Apple Beach's Mom Goodbye. So, yeah, so if you want, if you found out some really cool, interesting information about uh, this week's song, you never really knew anything about it, um, you can email me at samltbillyicloud.com, and you can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies and check out more of my original music at samwilliamsmusic.net. Um, yeah, so um, hopefully I educated you guys about... Uh, this band, Jane the Techniques, and, and and the record business. You never really knew anything about it before when you're around my age. You never heard the song before. Um, but yeah, also, as per usual, things you can check out in the description of this episode of this podcast are the links to the song and also links to my Spotify and YouTube playlist for this podcast. There you'll be able to find all the songs I've talked about on my show so far, including some ones that I've mentioned in interview episodes 
Um, you know, it'd be really cool if you can go on there and check those out. Um, you know, because that will give you an idea for what kind of music I talk about in my show so far. And hopefully that'll give you some ideas for, you know, what kind of music I should talk about next on my show that I haven't talked about that. And if that does, you can email me at samltwilliicloud.com. You know, you can let me know those ideas if any of those ideas come to you. But definitely would appreciate it if you could do that. Because um, that will let me know that you really do pay attention and care to my, care about my show. So you can do that um, by, you know, also um, listening to those Spotify and YouTube playlists and link to those playlists are in the description of this episode of this podcast and you can also check out my Redbubble merchandise store for this podcast there you'll be able to find the super cool logo that i didn't design but i came up with the idea for it's basically the catchphrase i say at the end of every episode and keep on trucking tight i found with my, my podcast at the bottom and it's attached to a bunch of different merch items like t-shirts and coffee mugs and all kinds of stuff and you know would love it if you can support me and purchase an item from the store uh, you know, really appreciate that. Um, and or if not, you can also send me your your thoughts and feedback on the actual like design of the logo itself and the prices of each item in the store. And you can do that by emailing me at samltwilliacloud.com or you can also reach out to me on Instagram, iheartoldies. And yeah, one more thing I wanted to mention. I've been kind of forgetting to mention this uh, in this in this uh, in this uh, my podcast, but. If you're just randomly listening to this show through the Apple Podcast app, please leave me a review. Let me know what you think of the show through the Apple Podcast app. Because I really need, the more reviews I get, the more my show gets pushed into the new and noteworthy section of iTunes. Would love it if you can do that. You know, I really appreciate it if you could just, you know, leave me a review. Let me know what you think of the show through there. And uh, yeah, so that, I would definitely appreciate that. Um, but yeah, so anyways, um, I'm going to, like I said before, I'm going to keep doing this podcast for a while. I'll let you guys know when that interview with Tommy, with, with Tommy James and Sean Dell's bass player, Mike Vale, when that's, when that will happen, um, because it should be for episode 100. So I'm working on that right now. I haven't sent the interview yet, but I will. So yeah, so I'll let you guys know when that happens and, uh, I'll, I'll definitely give you a heads up about that. So I'm Sam Limbs and thank you for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. Until next week, please keep things groovy. Mm-hmm.